continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. And now we are back to our episode two, talking about treatment of anxiety, specifically medications. If you're interested in hearing our first episode about sort of how to diagnose, how to assess children with anxiety and talking about exposure therapy, please check out our first episode. But now on to our episode talking about treatment options, especially medications for anxiety. Great. So... Uh, we've talked about the uh, counseling that's involved, some of the exposure therapy, and for these patients who are indicated for pharmacotherapy, either because they have such a high level of functional impairment or that they're struggling with exposure therapy or that we are almost bridging them to exposure therapy because of delays and just lack of access, what is kind of a psychiatrist's approach to first-line agents? How are you monitoring response? Can you talk us through a little bit about how you view pharmacotherapy for anxiety disorders? Absolutely. So pharmacotherapy for anxiety disorders, again, is sometimes necessary, definitely, you know, can contribute to effectiveness and ideally is done in conjunction with exposure therapy. So the gold standard medication, evidence-based medication for anxiety disorders in kids in particular would be the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. Interestingly, there, well, evidence for them is not much FDA approval (laughs) for them. Um, And so a lot of pharmacotherapy for anxiety disorders and OCD in children is off-label, which doesn't mean non-evidence-based. It just means off-label. So I'm going to give my own approach that is based largely in the research that there is, which there's not as much as we would like. And also based on the fact that I've been doing this for a long time, and this is all I do all day, every day. (laughs) And so I've also sort of come to see patterns and gotten into a certain way of approaching um, making medication decisions together with, with families and kids. So if I'm looking at a child who either has a moderate to severe anxiety disorder or OCD, who either has already been in exposure therapy and hasn't moved the needle as much as we want, or who is impaired enough that we feel like we need to start an SSRI concurrently with exposure therapy, then I'm typically looking at using either fluoxetine, sertraline, or escitalopram. There are plenty of other folks who might choose to use some of the other SSRIs, and I can talk about why I choose what I choose, but I would be looking at one of those three. In deciding which one of those three to start with, I would be asking family history of blood relatives who had good or bad responses to any of those three medications for kind of two reasons. One is because if someone had a really robust positive response and they're genetically related to that person, then perhaps there's some, you know, genetic component that is going to be helpful, right, in, you know, in in their child's response. I also want to know if the experience has been really bad because placebo is real, placebo effect is real, and medications have side effects. And if a family has already had a bad experience with a medicine and I'm trying to twist their arm to start it, and then they start having side effects, we are going to have trust problems. And we're also going to have 
a lot harder time keeping a child on them and tolerating the side effects that might be transient, but still might feel really scary and aversive if someone in the family has had a bad response. So those are the two reasons why I asked that question. So if there is no family history of any medication response and the family really doesn't care which medicine that they start with, then a couple other factors I think about are, am I concerned about a child or family struggling with adherence? The classic example of this is a teenager who, you know, like wants to be in charge of their own medications, but may or may not remember to take their medication every day. Um, that's one example. There are lots of other reasons why there might be adherence issues. So all else being equal, if I'm concerned that there might be days where they forget to take it or, you know, sometimes kids are going back and forth between two different parents' houses and one parent's more on board with them being on medicine and the other's not. And so they're missing doses when they're at the other, you know, whatever it may be. Fluoxetine of those three I listed has the longest half-life and is the most forgiving with missed doses. So I might choose that strictly because I, I want the delivery and the, the sort of steady state level to stay as stable as possible despite misdoses. If there's a child with really significant GI symptoms already, right? So maybe it's a child who has um, baseline, you know, loose stool or upset stomach, or they're having a lot of GI symptoms with their anxiety, like we talked about before. Again, this is not evidence-based. This is sort of my experience. Sertraline seems to be particularly hard on the GI tract for some kids. And so that may not be my first choice. I may lean more towards something like escitalopram, which seems to be a little easier on GI, you know, on, on little kids' GI tracts or any, anyone's GI tracts. So, you know, those are things to consider when picking one. But the other thing I would say for anyone choosing to do this is get, try to get comfortable with all three um, because the other thing that's true is that not every child will respond to the first SSRI you start them on, and you want to get some degree of comfort with switching to different ones. And so if there's no other compelling reason, pick one, start with it, and then know that you might need to switch to another. So you're talking a little bit about getting some family history, maybe that might at least help with some side effects and some you know placebo or even nocebo effects. In terms of when I think about genetics, I, there's also some of this new testing, you know, gene site testing mm -hmm. that we've definitely um, sort of, I've seen many adult patients get this done. I myself have had a couple of patients that have gene site testing and I've gotten the reports and, you know, they look, they look interesting. They categorize everything from green, yellow to red and, and also giving like which different types of alleles and stuff might be causing issues. So that dose may need to be higher or lower or be careful of interactions with other things. Do we see a place where this could be useful um, in treating our kids? Not yet. This is not my area of expertise. I'll be the first to say I have a colleague where I work who this is his area of expertise. So I ask him these questions a fair amount when they come up from families or from other providers. And my understanding of it is give it 10 years and maybe we'll be there. But right now, this is really still in the research phase of how clinically meaningful you know, I don't love, I understand from a marketing perspective why it is this way. And I don't love that they use like the red, yellow, green for some of these because it leads families to feel like red, ooh, I shouldn't take that. Like that's dangerous. That's bad. Or green implies like this will work for you and you'll tolerate it well, right? And it, that's really clinically not often the case. And so if families ask me and they haven't already had it done, I will say, do not spend your money on that right now. Maybe in a decade, that will be something that your psychiatrist is telling you to do. But right now, I would not recommend it because it won't actually change 
what we try in any meaningful way. If a family comes into me with it, having already spent the money on it, and they're saying, here, please follow this, I will look at it and I will try to engage with the family around what their beliefs about this are or what they've heard from other people about what this means. And if I have other clinical reasons for recommending one medicine that's in the red category or the yellow category, I will still do it. Excellent. Thank you. When you're starting a medication, can you talk through the process of what you're counseling parents on, what a resp- what response they should expect to see, when they should see it, when you're going to go up on the dose, when you're going to abandon that SSRI and try something else? Absolutely. So when I talk to families, what I say is this, that I first I explain the evidence base for the SSRIs like I explained to you about for moderate, you know, moderate to severe illness that the research shows that the two together are more effective than one alone. Then I explain that two things are true. (laughs) For anxious kids especially, we oftentimes need to start really low. And for anxiety disorders, we often need to go higher than we do for mood disorders. So start low, go slow, but get high. (laughs) Um, So I talk with families up front about the fact that we're going to start low, we're going to be checking in, seeing how you're tolerating it, and we're going to continue increasing. And we're probably going to get to, I'll usually give the dose range, like I'll say, the dose range for sertraline is 12.5 milligrams to 200 milligrams. And that doesn't mean anything because the dose range for escitalopram is 2.5 milligrams to 20 milligrams. So the absolute number doesn't matter. I'm giving you a range up front so that as we're continuing to climb up the dose scale, you're not wondering when are we going to stop, right? So I say up front, we probably will need to get to the higher end of that dose range if your child tolerates it because the evidence shows that anxiety disorders and OCD tend to need and respond to higher SSRI doses than something like depression. With that said, every single child is an individual, right? So if you start seeing benefit and your exposure therapy is moving along at a good clip and kids are regaining functioning, like then you don't need to keep going up. Obviously, stop and stop where you are. You don't have to get that high. But if you're seeing some benefit, a lower dose, but there's still a fair amount of symptoms left, go higher. Absolutely go higher. And I think that's one of the biggest, I won't say mistakes. I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's just, I think a lot of primary care doctors don't know because we haven't, we haven't provided training and residency like we should have. But, you know, we'll have kids come into us on sertraline 50 milligrams needing a 30 hour a week intensive day hospital program. And I'm thinking, wow, like, let's push the dose, let's push the dose of the sertraline, right? Like they're sitting on 50 milligrams for months. We're seeing what we're going to see. We need to go higher than this. So, so that's what I'll say to families about dose escalation. And then do you want me to give sort of how I explain risks, benefits, alternatives, black box warning, like all of those things? Okay. So I'm going to do this like we're going to say, Justin, you are bringing in your child for this. Um, first, I'm going to ask, before we even have the conversation, I'm going to say, you know, you're here getting treatment for your child for anxiety. Can you help me understand what your thoughts are in general about medicine, particularly for psychiatric disorders, right? Because a huge number of folks will have lots of concerns coming in the door. And if I don't ask those first, we have just lost a huge chance for effective communication, right? So usually I will ask that, like, how do you feel about medications? And I'll hear whatever that is. 
then I will ask permission. Even if they're like, we don't want him, I'll say, would you mind if I told you a little bit about how I'm going to be thinking about this as we're treating, you know, as we're treating your your child? And then if someone's saying like, yep, actually, we're on board with medication, I explain sort of the reasons like I just did, then how I would counsel around, you know, side effects and things like that would be, you know, okay, let's say we're going to start with sertraline. So we're going to start low because we know for anxious kids, sometimes the side effects of, you know, increased edginess or a feeling of revving up can be a little bit higher. So we're going to start at 12 and a half milligrams and we are going to have you take 12 and a half milligrams every morning for a week. And probably you're not going to feel anything because this is a really low dose. And I'm doing it because I want to be sure you tolerate it and I want you to get comfortable taking this medication. So we're going to do 12 and a half milligrams for a week. And then if everything's going the same, you know, fine on 12 and a half milligrams, then we're going to go up to 25. And we're going to go up by 12 and a half milligram increments every one or two weeks until we are seeing the progress that we want to see or until we run into a side effect. And if there's a side effect, and I'll explain what those are in a minute, I want to know. And I want to talk to you about whether or not this is a side effect that I actually think is going to go away with a little more time on the medicine, or maybe we need to drop the dose for a little while, or if there's a side effect that tells us we need to switch to a different medication. So some of the side effects that you might look for with sertraline or fluoxetine or escitalopram would be stomach upset. And that's because a huge number of our serotonin receptors are in our gut. (laughs) And so we can't avoid them when we take these medications. The good news is those should be transient. Those should come and go, hopefully within a week or two. If they don't, then we'll know this isn't the medicine for you and we'll try a different one. So if you have a little bit of queasy stomach, if your stool is a little bit loose or you're pooping more often, or if you get a little bit of a heartburn sensation, I want you to tell me about it. And if it's manageable, I'm probably going to tell you, let's try to write it out. And if it's not, and we're at a higher dose, we'll drop back down to a lower dose. One of the other side effects that we can sometimes see is trouble sleeping or like a restless feeling or a revved up feeling. So I typically recommend starting these medications in the morning if you've never taken one before. Some people will get tired with them. And if that happens, then we will move it to the nighttime. (laughs) But generally speaking, start in the morning and take it at a time that you can remember to take it. (laughs) If you have GI upset, taking it with food will probably help that. So try to take it with breakfast if you're taking it in the morning. You're going to see on the label of the SSRI when you pick it up from the pharmacy something called the FDA black box warning. Have you heard anything about that before? Many families will have heard something about that. Or when you start to explain it, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I heard from so-and-so that this medicine can make my child suicidal. So what I say is what you're going to read on that warning is that for children, teenagers, and young adults through the age of 24, there were some studies in the early 2000s that showed an increased risk of suicidal thinking. And that's real, right? We take that seriously. What we know is that untreated serious psychiatric disorders still confer a greater risk of suicide. And I'm prescribing this medication with supervision and with follow-up. And I would not prescribe this medication to you and send you away for six months and say, let me know when you're feeling better. I'm going to be following up with you. And I want you to tell me if you're having any experiences of thoughts about hurting yourself that you weren't having before. I don't have any hesitation in prescribing this medication. I've been doing this for a long time. I don't have any hesitation in prescribing this medication to your child because they can be really effective. And if you start to have any problems with it, you will let me know and I will fix it. So. At this point, I will also usually say to families that children with 
severe anxiety disorders or OCD oftentimes have had some thoughts of life being better off not being lived or wanting to be dead because these disorders can be really distressing and impairing. And so I will talk to kids before I prescribe these if they've had any of these thoughts and really normalize and let them know it's not anything to be ashamed of or embarrassed of. Lots of kids feel this way when they're suffering with such severe anxiety. And if you're already having them, I need to know because I need to know if you have them in the future, if we think this is new from your medicine or if this is actually part and parcel of the very thing that we're treating with the medicine. And either way, I'm going to monitor and support. So those are kind of the main side effects that I talk about. There are many others that can come up. And so I will encourage families to let me know if anything happens that they're, you know, wondering about. Sometimes I'll talk about, you know, easy bruising. Um, Serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors actually affect platelet function because there are serotonin receptors on platelets. Fun fact. And so it doesn't drop your number of platelets. It just makes them sort of less sticky. So you can bruise more easily. But there's not any like bigger concern about that. I will say those serotonin receptors, they're everywhere. They're they're everywhere. everywhere. They're everywhere. (laughs) They're everywhere. (laughs) I will say, interestingly, that I have had lots of kids who get either more recurrent or more severe nosebleeds if they're prone to nosebleeds. So I don't think you have to ask this up front. But if you happen to and you find out this happens to be a child who gets a lot of nosebleeds, you might want to warn the parents that the nosebleeds could get worse because, you know, heavy nosebleeds can be shocking if parents aren't expecting them. If that's the case and that happens, you know, it's I wouldn't not prescribe the SSRI. I would just warn parents like, hey, you might want to have on a humidifier. You might want to use Vaseline in the nares, right? Just some mitigating factors. And if the nosebleeds do start um, and the SSRI is working and you want to keep the child on it, then having them see an ENT to evaluate if there's like a single vessel that seems real close to the surface that could be cauterized is a way to keep them on it. So that's kind of an aside, but actually happens more than you would think. And how are you monitoring effectiveness? Is it just how they're doing in exposure therapy? Or if you're not communicating that closely with the therapist, which maybe we should be, is there another way to measure? Is it just subjective? Like you feel like they're doing better? How do you monitor a patient on Yeah. I mean, yes, in an ideal world, who's ever prescribing the medication would be communicating closely with the therapist. (laughs) And I recognize that's an ideal world. That's not always the realistic world. So what I say to, to families and what I would say to you is there are a few different signals that the medication's working. If there is any sort of mood component to how the child is presenting, so like the anxiety has gotten so bad that the child's now also really irritable or depressed or something like that. We oftentimes will see the SSRI help mood before it helps anxiety or OCD. So if we, if parents start noticing, hmm, like the anxiety is still raging, but Anita is actually like just a lot less sad, like we're seeing more of her personality back, right? Or she's not nearly as irritable as she was before. That's good news. Like that's a good sign that they're responding and we just need to get to a higher dose to be effective for the anxiety disorder or the OCD. And then with regard to the like the response itself, you know, to the disorder itself, depends on the age of the child. What I describe to kids who can self-reflect in this way is, you know, they might notice that the thoughts are still there, but they don't feel like quite as intense, like the feelings aren't quite as intense, or, you know, that the physical symptoms, if they were having a lot of physical symptoms, like might tamp down a little bit, like heart palpitations, heart racing, things like that can be pretty common in generalized anxiety disorder. And SSRIs anecdotally seem to help with that, with those physical symptoms 
fairly well and maybe a little earlier than with some of the more cognitive and emotional symptoms. So I'll just sort of share with families what to look out for that might mean that it's working. And then obviously check-ins about functioning, like, you know, she wasn't going to school and now she is, right? Like that's clear evidence that it's doing something. I have one question about monitoring. One thing that I do in my own practice is, you know, especially for my patients that seem to be more in the generalized anxiety disorder and they've presented to me with a very high GAD7 score is, you know, I'll, part of my, my monitoring is redoing a GAD7 every time I see them and, you know, watching them go from an 18 down to 11 down to a six. Mm-hmm. Is that a wrong way of thinking or is that a very reasonable thing to do? Because that's the only way for me, sometimes I can objectify exactly mm-hmm. what is somewhat subjective. Yeah, I think that's fine. I don't think it's right or wrong. I think if that works for you, that's fine. Um, I don't think you have to do it every time, but it does give some sense of, you know, of objective scoring. I think generalized anxiety disorder in particular is hard (laughs) because it is oftentimes a chronic waxing and waning thing. And so it might also depend on the day you're catching the person, like how they rate those things on, you know, on a on a screening or or measure. So I think when you're working with kids, especially like having caregivers weigh in too, you know, on what they're noticing, you know, would be helpful. But I think I don't think there's anything wrong with monitoring over time, um, the GAD7 or any other any other measurement that you're used to using. And so after you start, let's say you did um, escitalopram, they didn't tolerate it for whatever reason, you tried another SSRI, fluoxetine, similarly had some side effect that they did not tolerate. Do you go through three of the SSRIs? Is there an alternative? Do you turn to TCAs or any other of these alternatives in children? Um yeah, great what's question. Your, what's your thought process on this? Right. So definitely if I've tried one SSRI and they just didn't tolerate it, right? Like we ran into side effects that were just intolerable before we could get to a dose where we saw benefit, I would definitely try a second SSRI, no question. Unless, of course, the SSRI had flipped them into a hypomanic or manic episode, totally different episode of the podcast. But um, but otherwise, once there have been two SSRIs, it would depend on what they're not tolerating, I guess, like what the intolerance looks like, and also if there was any benefit being seen while we did it, right? So one scenario might be, yeah, actually, like their anxiety started to look better on 100 milligrams of sertraline, but the loose stool just never went away, <laughs> right? Like, and that was really bothersome. Versus, no, we got to 100, they were having loose stool and we saw, and like the anxiety wasn't any better either. And the same thing happened on another SSRI. Then you might think about switching med classes versus trying a different SSRI that maybe had a lower risk burden, you know, for that particular side effect. Um, TCAs in kids. So clomipramine is the TCA that has evidence in OCD and the side effect profile is very real. (laughs) So I am not super quick to, you know, to switch someone over to a TCA unless I have a pretty compelling reason. A compelling reason might be like such severe OCD and multiple SSRI trials that didn't work and a family that is like absolutely reliable about dosing and a child who is not suicidal because TCAs and overdose are no joke. Um, you know, so certainly I've had patients on on clomipramine, but they're more likely to get anticholinergic side effects. And they're more like, you know, I mean, there's a lot that comes along with it. You need EKG monitoring, you need to check blood levels intermittently, you know, and so I don't, for kids, I don't tend to transition to that. More often, what I will do is 
And it kind of depends on what's surrounding the anxiety disorder. And by that, I mean like other comorbidities and things like that, because anxiety disorders oftentimes coexist with other disorders. So, you know, if a child is getting exposure therapy and an SSRI doesn't seem to be working super well, but they're tolerating it, then I might try a serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, right? So I might try venlafaxine or duloxetine. Interestingly, duloxetine is actually the only serotonergic medication with an FDA indication for generalized anxiety disorder. Like none of the SSRI, in kids, none of the SSRIs have it. (laughs) Some of the SSRIs have it for OCD, but not GAD. But duloxetine has it for GAD. Go figure. Um, So if they're, you know, if I'm just not getting the response I want from SSRIs, but they're tolerating like the serotonergic load, then I might switch to an SNRI. And sometimes you see better response in that, right? Sometimes I will augment with a benzodiazepine in a like either bridge sort of way or a very like planful scheduled way. And then for some kids, we augment with an atypical antipsychotic, specifically aripiprazole or risperidone, which have some evidence, again, not an FDA indication, but evidence in OCD in particular. So, but I also think, Justin, that it would be totally fair at that point to refer to a psychiatrist. (laughs) You know, I don't know that, I don't know that you as a pediatrician need to have done two like good, reasonable SSRI trials and either are encountering bad side effects. The second (laughs) antipsychotic, that's usually when I go to psychiatry after that. Your brave soul, my friend. <laughs> Quadruple therapy. Um, yeah. Beth, I, you mentioned something, you know, about some, you know, very judicious use of benzodiazepines. And that's one yeah. thing that, um, you know, I think comes up so much clinically, right, um, mm-hmm. is especially in a primary care setting, people um, have questions about benzodiazepines or, um, you know, often the pediatric world, antihistamines. And yeah. I guess, you know, what are your thoughts on the role and the utility, mm-hmm. especially, you know, just thinking about sort of the frame that you've provided us so nicely in episode part one um, about sort of like the core fear and and tolerating distress around anxiety and sort of the idea of these PRNs as reducing those distressing experiences. Right. So that point that you just raised, Becca, is the crux of sort of how I use benzodiazepines. So first, let me say like big grain of salt here, because I work in a five day a week, 30 hour a week intensive day hospital program where we are doing high fidelity exposure therapy for all of the children that we see. Right. So when I use benzodiazepines, I get to use them in that frame. (laughs) And with that, I will say I do use them and I don't shy away from using them with very specific purposes. So examples of times that I will use benzodiazepines are to help the child effectively access the more durable long-term treatment, which is exposure therapy. So you, if you have a child who is so anxious they can't even get in the building to get the therapy, you need to help them get the therapy, right? The plan is not for them to stay on the benzodiazepine forever, you know, quite the contrary, but you have to help them get there. And benzodiazepines can be helpful in bridging someone into the treatment that is more long-term and sustainable. And so for our program specifically, I will sometimes, for kids who are super anxious about just showing up for program every day, we will schedule a morning dose of lorazepam, 0.5 milligrams, every single morning for the first couple of weeks just to get them in the door, right? And then we're going to take it away once they've habituated to just getting in the door. What you'll notice about that is I said schedule. 
I didn't say, well, give it to them if they need it. (laughs) Because to your point, Becca, and I love that you made this connection, we don't want to inadvertently send the message that undoes what we're saying about if anxiety is something to be feared or not, right? So if we are saying, nope, face your fears, tolerate the feeling, but here, put this thing in your mouth when the feeling gets way too high that you can't tolerate it anymore, right? Because it doesn't matter what else we say, the internalized experience is, oh gosh, like they think it's bad enough by that point that I need to take this thing to make me feel better. That becomes what's called either a safety signal or it in and of itself becomes reassurance or a ritual, right? It contributes to the anxiety cycle. Not helpful. But if I say, doesn't matter how you feel in the morning, you've been having a hard enough time getting into program, you know, on any given day that we're just going to schedule or as a PAM for the next two weeks to get you in the door. That's very different. Does that make sense? So and then the other place I might use it is so that's just getting somebody access, you know, to access the exposure therapy. Um, The other place would be if you're bridging someone onto an SSRI or from one SSRI to another SSRI. And we know that SSRIs will take some time to work, although incidentally, not as long anecdotally as we were sort of traditionally taught, right? Like we're often told eight to 12 weeks, and that might be true for full effect, but we will oftentimes see a signal of response before that. But as you are waiting for the SSRI to kick in or to get to a dose that's going to be effective, and again, depending on the level of impairment, doing a short-term course of lorazepam or clonazepam is absolutely something we would do, but in a scheduled way, not a PRN way. As far as antihistamines, you know, I know a lot of people will prescribe hydroxyzine because it feels like better and safer than a benzodiazepine, which it is in the sense of, you know, abuse and withdrawal and addiction. Like those things are all true. And for some kids, they can help calm anxiety. Again, I think the bigger issue is not using it as a PRN, but rather using it in a very planful, scheduled way with a clear message while you're working on the longer term treatment. Chronic use of antihistamines obviously can lead to other things too, like lots of kids will get constipated or they'll have dry mouth or that, you know, I mean, all of those things are true. So I wouldn't think of them as totally benign. And again, the messaging implicit and explicit that you're giving around why you're prescribing it and how they're taking it is is important. I would love to go back to when you mentioned the joke of uh, referring to their when I made the hilarious antipsychotic joke of going to the, the uh, <laughs> psychiatrist. Uh, how much do you think a primary care provider should feel comfortable in that? Like, I feel relatively comfortable with SSRIs. And should I feel comfortable doing two rounds and then refer to a psychiatrist? Or is there an indication that you think this is when the patient really should be seen a subspecialist for their anxiety in addition to a psychotherapist. Yeah. So this is definitely just going to be my opinion. This is not based in any research that I'm aware of. I think that largely depends on what your access is (laughs) and what your training has been and what your comfort level and risk aversion is. So I think I would love I'll put it this way. I would love primary care providers to get comfortable going through, yeah, going through two SSRI trials at adequate doses. And by that, I mean optimal, probably higher than you're used to doses um, as long as they're being tolerated in conjunction with being sure that your patient is seeing an exposure therapist, right? If If they have access or that you're at least counseling the family on how to take the exposure frame right? The validating yet limit setting exposure frame with their children. I think that that, I think that's totally reasonable. I think that gets 
more complicated if you didn't learn how to prescribe SSRIs in training because then they feel very mysterious and scary and it's hard to know how to talk to families about things that you've never practiced doing. I'm actually the facilitator of an educational program for pediatricians in the state that I live in, teaching them how to do this in an outpatient primary care setting. So I know it's possible because we have pediatricians who are doing it. And many of them have said, like, it was hard to do at first. And now that I've done it, like, I myself have amassed my own experience that makes me more comfortable. So I think a couple of adequate SSRI trials make sense. With that in mind, I also want to note, you don't have to pull a child entirely off of one SSRI before you can start the other one. You can do a crossover. And maybe if we have time later in the episode, I can tell you how we do that. But we don't want to force like removal of all treatment before we re-implement treatment, if at all possible, especially if it was doing anything helpful and if it wasn't causing bad side effects. When thinking about like when you refer, I think how whatever other comorbidities are going on matters, right? Like because that sort of gives an eye to complexity. So I think if you're feeling confused about like, well, I don't know, this child has an anxiety disorder, this child also has ADHD, and this child's also depressed. And I'm having a hard time disentangling like what's contributing to what. So like the more complexity there is, then I think the more you want a specialist's eye and ear kind of digging a little bit deeper, spending a little longer than I know primary care doctors get the luxury to have sometimes, and considering like, okay, these two SSRIs didn't work, what else might I try, right? Like, I think those are incredibly reasonable times to refer. Look, I love it if there were enough child psychiatrists in our country that you could refer everybody, and the reality is that's not the case. And so I think judicious use of human capital resources um, kind of begs for primary care providers to become reasonably comfortable with a couple of SSRI trials in kids who don't have lots of other comorbidities. Does that feel fair to you? Absolutely. Totally. Totally. So you actually, so you just talked about cross tapering and and since you just brought it up, I'd actually like to delve into that a little more. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've tried my hand at cross tapering. Sometimes I have my pharmacist who, who I have, luckily I have one in my clinic Help me with some of this as well. Uh, I've definitely found that if I'm cross tapering off like fluoxetine, which is a longer, much longer half life, is a little easier from that standpoint. But mm-hmm. can, can you can you describe your this, this approach? And can people withdraw? Like if we, especially if we mm-hmm. cross taper or or decrease their medications too quickly? Yes. So the short answer is yes, they can. So it's called discontinuation syndrome, or you can have discontinuation symptoms from SSRIs. It is not dangerous. And this is what I tell families. It's not dangerous. It's not going to like hurt you, but it's uncomfortable. Um, and people will describe, and this can happen with missed doses of the SSRIs that have shorter half-lives. So like one or more missed doses of sertraline or escitalopram, patients can certainly describe having some of these symptoms. You're right that fluoxetine, you're less likely to have the discontinuation symptoms because it just sort of, you know, steadily tapers itself out because of its long half-life. But you can actually, you know, you can absolutely have discontinuation symptoms with misdoses or when you're actually taking somebody off of it. That will feel like a combination, usually what patients report is of sort of like a tingling or zapping feeling like in, you know, in their head or in their, um, you know, in their hands or extremities sometimes headaches, sometimes kind of like just like a cloudiness or a fog, sometimes being a little more tired, a little more irritable, none of which are dangerous, but are certainly unpleasant. So you're right that tapering, crossing over from fluoxetine to something else is easier from a discontinuation perspective. That's true because fluoxetine sort of comes out more smoothly. Crossing over 
from fluoxetine to something else does increase the risk of something like serotonin syndrome if you start stacking, you know, serotonergic agents on top without realizing that fluoxetine is still there in the background taking its sweet time getting out. You know, serotonin syndrome is not exceedingly common. And actually, of the children I've treated who have had serotonin syndrome, it has not been from the combination of SSRIs during a crossover. It's actually been from the combination of an SSRI with opiates. For kids, you know, who are on chronic opiates, either for sickle cell disease, I worked in a peds hemonc clinic where patients were needing to be on opiates for a variety of post-chemo pain complications. Um, that's actually where I saw serotonin syndrome happen more. But you can theoretically and practically for some patients get serotonin syndrome if you're ramping up the shorter half-life agent faster than the fluoxetine has a chance to come out. So an example crossover that's fairly easy because dose equivalency is pretty easy in terms of the numbers and the half-lives are similar. It might be something like escitalopram and sertraline, right? Half-lives, roughly 24 hours. Escitalopram goes from 2.5 to 20. Sertraline goes from 12.5 to 200. So it's an, you know, an order of magnitude of 10. So you might say, okay, you're on 20 milligrams of escitalopram and we want to cross you over to sertraline. So you can, where did I say we were starting? We're starting with escitalopram. So you might go down in two and a half milligram increments of escitalopram while you go up in 12 and a half or 25 milligram increments of sertraline every three to five days, right? So four to five half-lives, you know, roughly steady state. So you might pick every four to five days, every week if you want to go, you know, a little more slowly. You're sort of making those, I'm using my hands and no one can see me. Um, you're making those sort of equivalent <laughs> changes. And then what you're counseling families on is what discontinuation feels like and the fact that it's uncomfortable but not dangerous and what serotonin syndrome looks like and the fact that it is dangerous. And so, you know, you're just guiding them on kind of what to look for and to let you know. And if you experience discontinuation, then you slow down the taper off of the old medicine, right? And if you experience serotonin syndrome, you drop everything. <laughs> you drop everything a lot lower, right? And potentially use lorazepam, you know, to manage some of the symptoms and obviously more intensive medical intervention if there's vital sign instability and things like that. So you can get a crossover done in, you know, in a matter of a few weeks without ever having the person have to come entirely off an SSRI, especially if they're getting some partial benefit from the one that they're that they had been on first. That is so helpful just to kind of think about how you conceptualize that. Um you know, I feel like I've seen people doing that and, and always just been a bystander. Um, <laughs> I, I do wonder, you know, as, as we've talked about like a little bit with therapy and kind of is therapy lifelong, um, who uh, are good candidates for maybe stopping an SSRI or would mm. we ever stop an SSRI? You know, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I love that question because that gets at a question that a lot of parents have before they ever start their child on an SSRI, which is, does this mean that my child's going to be on this forever? Um, and the answer is no, it does not. <laughs> um, first of all, because at any point you can decide to take them off. And second of all, because they likely won't need it forever if they're getting high fidelity effective exposure therapy. So deciding when you're going to stop an SSRI has to do with why you decide to put them on them in, in the first place and how effective it's been. So an example might be, you know, Anita, let's say, right, going back to our, our eight-year-old patient from the last episode, let's say we diagnosed her with generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is a bit of a tricky mister, so, you know, sometimes doesn't ex respond as well to just pure exposure therapy as we want. So we decide we also need to start an SSRI because we're trying and the impairment's still very real and, you know, and, and not much is happening. And the SSRI helps. 
and Anita is able to get into school more effectively without sort of big outbursts to parents. And, you know, she's able to get through her homework a little bit better. I would want her to be showing like remission or drastic reduction in symptoms for months, a period of months before we start tapering down on the SSRI. Not years, not her lifetime, right? But a period of months. That's going a little bit based on the research in depression. Depression's different because it's episodic, whereas anxiety disorders kind of aren't. They're more kind of waxing and waning with periods of exacerbation, right? But also they kind of come and go in somewhat of a different way than depression necessarily does. So that's extrapolating a little bit from the depression research. And there are, you know, folks interested in doing some studies on what the actual concrete research would show in terms of when to discontinue SSRIs. But I say to families, get your child to the point where you want them to be, right? Full remission or reasonable reduction in symptoms and back to baseline level of functioning. Treat like that for a period of several months, maybe six to nine months. Then pick a time that isn't the time of a big transition or a big life stressor. (laughs) Like don't do it at the start of the school year. And then start gradually tapering down and see what you see, right? And if anxiety starts to creep back in, see if you can re-intensify the exposure model, right? See if like, okay, you know, things were going so well, we had stopped seeing the therapist. We hadn't really been thinking as a family, like in this exposure lifestyle way. Re-intensify that if you can. And if you can get back on top of it with that, you can keep coming down on the medicine, right? Because again, it's a learning process that you just have to start practicing again. But if the symptoms ramp back up and none of that works, then you may need to go back up and that wasn't the time to try. But plenty of kids can come all the way off their SSRI doing so gradually and treating whatever kind of crops back up with a reintensification of exposure. This is great. I I think this is is amazing. Um, I think we've hit on a lot from assessing the different anxiety disorders, uh, psychotherapy, initiating, monitoring treatments. Maybe before wrapping up, anything else? Can I say one other thing in reference to um, equity issues around anxiety disorders? Absolutely. Um, I would I would be totally remiss in not saying this explicitly. Like we talked about in the first episode, you really can't tell a whole lot by just what the outward behavior is, right? Like I'm encouraging you to go deeper into finding out what is the core fear? What is the function that that behavior is serving, right? What is it serving to neutralize or, you know, or in response to? When we think about equity issues in relation to anxiety disorders, we have to keep in mind that internalizing disorders like anxiety and depression are underdiagnosed and externalizing disorder, particularly the highly stigmatized disorders of oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder, are overdiagnosed disproportionately in children from racial and ethnically minoritized backgrounds. And so I just can't implore the listeners enough. When you see a child in your office who has externalizing behaviors, please keep anxiety on your differential. Because the fight or flight response is real, (laughs) right? And that is a response to anxiety. And so if you have a fighter, that doesn't mean it's an oppositional kid. Anxious avoidance followed by the fight response when forced to confront the thing can look for all the world (laughs) like a kid who's aggressive and, you know, and oppositional and things like that. And that may not be the issue. And so I think just keep anxiety there in your mind as maybe the first thing you think of, not like the last thing you think of, particularly when you're seeing a patient who you know is going to be more likely to be stigmatized with something externalizing and frankly, more structurally relevant. 
This is great. And we we uh, did an ADHD episode way back when, and very with, similar. I heard it concept, with Dr. Vincent, and, who's phenomenal. Yes, yeah. yes. and uh, very much echoes that sentiment. So I think it's great to uh, have some spaced repetition about the importance of of those, especially externalizing and stigma stigmatizing uh, uh, environments that people uh, have to go up in. I'm sorry, Chris, uh, hit it with your favorite question. So my favorite question as we as we look to wrap up um, this fantastic this set of episodes is. What do you see in the future? What what are treatments on the horizon? Things to look out for? Treatments that you've maybe heard of, heard of that seem promising, just we don't have the evidence yet, like cool new types of behavioral therapy or even medications. Like what what do we have to look forward to in this space? That's hard because I don't read the literature as much as I should. <laughs> so cool new things. I would say, I mean, this isn't going to feel very cool probably to you guys, but it feels cool to me. I think what's on the horizon is figuring out how to get effective exposure therapy to more children. Like we already have a good treatment. I don't know that we need to go looking for the next best thing or the next silver bullet. We have a good treatment. We just can't give it to as many children as need to get it. The other thing I'll say about that is not only is it good for anxiety disorders, it is a way of life that is truly, I mean, I sound, I don't know, I sound ridiculous, I guess, but it's life-changing for kids and families. Like, I can't tell you the number of kids and families who have sort of this, this epiphany of like, I can do these hard things. Like, this isn't something I have to be terrified of or avoidant of, right? And and then there's a approach of lots more things besides their anxiety triggers of like, yeah, it's hard and I can do it. That's a really big deal <laughs> when we think about so many parts of life. And so I guess what I'm most excited about is the things being done to address access and equity of access to what we already know works. I love the it's hard and we can do it mantra. I think this is an excellent take-home point. Any other big take-home points that you think our listeners should walk away with after listening to these episodes? I think my only other main take-home point is the role of family change in perspective and approach from one of taking away the distress to one of naming it, validating it, making sense of it, and facing and leaning into it to cultivate a values-driven life that doesn't cow to, to fear and anxiety. That, to me, is life-changing, not only for the kids, but also for the families. And that's something that I totally think that primary care doctors can can work with families around. I also want to plug, if I can, the anxiouskids.org website, um, which is our, so that's our group, the Pediatric Anxiety Research Center, research, clinical care, and training that is working on some of these access issues, really doing grant-funded studies on how do we expand the reach of exposure therapy to more kids, in addition to the clinical programs that we already have. This has been so awesome, like just an amazing episode, so much. Um, like I feel like, honestly, changing the way that I'm going to be thinking about anxiety in the clinic, I think there's so so much rich information here. So I'm, I'm really excited. Thanks so much, Beth, for all, all your time. I, I think this is going to be a really great um, set of two episodes. We couldn't even we couldn't even just make it one. We just had to keep going. We were too into it. So that's always a good sign. I appreciate you inviting me. And um, I just I really appreciate the opportunity to get to share this. Clearly, I love what I do. Um, and I love the patients that I work with. And it's tr- like right anxiety is treatable. It is treatable. And we know how to do that. And that's good news in a time when there's not a lot of other good news. So thank you for letting me share that. 
Thank you. This is wonderful. I think a lot of people will learn a lot, appreciate it. We appreciate you and sharing your time and expertise. Thanks so much for, for joining us on the Cribsiders. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice change and knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thank you to our producers for this episode, Dr. Sally Elliott and Dr. Becca Raymond Colker, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Sally Elliott. I've been Becca Raymond Colker. And this has been Chris the Chimanchu. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.